What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Seven Figure Flipping Podcast. This is Bill Allen. You probably know that we just wrapped up Flip Hacking Live just a couple weeks ago. Well, every year, what I like to do is I like to share a little bit of what we did and some of the presentations that we had from the event. Andy McFarlane is always a crowd favorite. He's absolutely incredible, was my mentor and still is. And he crushed it with a seller financing presentation. So I want to share it on the podcast today. I know that we've shared a lot of seller financing training here, sub two, uh, owner finance, that kind of stuff on here. But uh, I just, I think you need to hear it over and over and over again. There, you know, there's a ton of deals out there right now, especially in the market that we're coming, coming out of, where you have low interest rates, where you guys can get great sub two type deals on your property. So I'm going to share Andy McFarland's Flip Hacking Live presentation right now. My name is Bill Allen, and I'm the leader of a group of elite house flippers and wholesalers called Seven Figure Flipping. We don't brag or show off our success, but instead let integrity and stewardship be our guide. We are dedicated to helping people unlock the freedom they desperately need. If you ask other real estate investors, they will say to keep your secrets quiet. But we believe in abundance, not scarcity. And that's why we are the elite. We are Seven Figure Flipping, and this podcast is our playbook. But I want to start somewhere with you guys first. Um, I had this awesome opportunity this year. I've been able to travel a lot with my family, and this was a bucket list trip for me. I don't know. How many of you guys have been to Israel? Anybody been to Israel? I can't really see very well, so I'm going to keep asking questions, ask you to raise your hands, and I'll no idea who's raising their hand out there because the lights are still right. Um, but I was able to go on this bucket list trip for me to go to Israel. I wanted to go there. Um, I read the scriptures, read the Bible, and I, I read about these places, and I wanted to go experience it. I wanted to go see it. I wanted to go feel it. And I was able to take my wife and my two oldest kids there because I thought they would, they would appreciate it. So I went there, took this bucket list trip to Israel, and I was literally walking where Jesus walked. Anybody's been to Israel, it's amazing. The, the, the Temple Mount is there, and the, the southern steps, there's this, there's this archway where you can actually like walk, like literally, like that's the closest you're going to get on earth to actually walking where known, where we know that Jesus walked. And that was a big deal for me to see that. I went there, I saw uh, the Sea of Galilee. I went to the Sea of Galilee and was on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. It was amazing. I got to go see where, you know, they think the Sermon on the Mount happened. I got to go um, to Nazareth. I got to go to Bethlehem. I got to go to all these places and it was so impactful for me. And it was such an amazing trip to take my family or to my wife, my two oldest kids there to go to Israel. It's amazing. And when we went to uh, Jordan, Jordan was really cool. We got to ride camels. We got to go see Petra. You may have seen Petra, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, it was super cool. Like, it was amazing to go see that. Like, totally bucket list stuff for me. And it was awesome. And then afterwards, we finished the trip by going to Egypt, which was super cool. So much history there. The pyramids. Are you talking, like, in America, we put a sign around, or we put, like, a block around something. If it's, like, 200 years old, it's historic, you know? You're not going to be able to go renovate that or do anything, like, until you get tons of permission to do it. Um, but go to Egypt and be inside the Great Pyramid, inside this, this, this tomb that's, like, how, you know, thousands of years old is like mind blowing to be there, touching it, feeling it, being there. So Egypt was absolutely amazing. Um, the interesting thing for me was like a life-changing experience there. And as we we're leaving, our last spot in Egypt was Luxor. We went there to the Valley of the Kings and we were there for a few days and then we were leaving. So we're going to the airport and we're about to catch a flight from Luxor to Cairo, Cairo to Paris, Paris home. Um, end of an amazing trip. And I got arrested. This has never happened to me before in my life. We're going through the airport. We have a guy, there's a few people on our trip. It's not many of us with my wife and kids. And we go through, go through airport security. They pull me aside. They start talking about things. My wife and kids are, what's going on? Most of our group has gone through. And they're going, what's up? What's going on here? I don't speak Arabic. And Egypt, 
I felt comfortable in Israel, felt comfortable in Jordan. Egypt was a little bit different. And I understood that our country might not have the greatest relationship with Egypt. That didn't really mean much to me. I'm like, it's okay. Um, my wife was like, are we going to be okay here? There's people with guns and stuff on. I'm like, no, we're totally going to be fine. And then we go there and go to the airport and we're there. And this turns into 30 minutes. Turns into an hour. Luckily, we came early because we got a flight to catch, to catch a flight, to catch a flight. Um, hour turns into an hour and a half and we got to go. People on the other side of the terminal, and they're like, we got to go. My bags are on the plane. We got to go. And the, the guy that's the, the tour guide who's an Egyptian man there, um, I'll tell you more about him later. Uh, he comes to me and has a different look on his face, and he says, you're not going anywhere. And I'm like, wait, what? My wife and kids lose it. Can you imagine? My wife is just crying, tears rolling down her face. My kids are just crying, and they're like, What? And there was a man there in a suit who seemed like he was in charge. And I, I took my wife and kids and I walked over to them with this man. And I was like pleading for mercy. I'm like, sir, I'm catching a flight with my wife and my kids. They're prying. And he goes, get a new flight. So that was the beginning of the first time I've ever been arrested. And what followed there was guilty till proven innocent, no bail, didn't know why I was being detained, made forced to sign something in Arabic that I don't understand. And uh, it was rough to say the least. Now that's not the purpose of my presentation, but I want to start with that because I will come back to that later because you're wondering, what is this, right? I don't mean to give you a cliffhanger. Um, but I do want to lead with this gratitude. Adam talked about that today. I am so incredibly grateful for the freedoms we enjoy in this greatest country in the world. I think I probably took that lightly before that. I took for granted a little bit some of the things that we have. My experience there, for the first time in my life, I was unable to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't do it. I was out of control. I, could, I had zero control there. And I thought it would be different, and it wasn't. And it made me grateful so much for justice, grateful for, I mean, our country's not perfect, but that, that you could have bail, that they weren't going to make me sleep in jail that I could maybe sleep in a hotel room for something. Um, grateful. So I am incredibly grateful for this country. I'm grateful for you guys showing up here. I, I hope I say this every year. Like you guys spent your money to be here, but more importantly, you spent your time to be here. I'm so grateful that you guys came here because you guys seriously are the power of, of the group. You guys are power of, of this event. So thank you to you guys sincerely for being here. Seriously. Okay. I love this. Regardless of where we're at in our life, we can have gratitude. I love this part here. I'm not going to read the quote to you, but it says, the part that says, it turns what we have into enough. I love that. Because many of you guys came here looking for something like Bill was saying. I hope you guys recognize that what you do have right now is you can be grateful for what you have. You have things right now like I had before I got detained in Egypt. I had things that I didn't know I was grateful for and you have things in your life right now, as bad as things might be or might seem in your life, and, and we all have stuff going on, I get it, I promise you, you have stuff to be grateful for, and I hope that you guys know that, like, gratitude, you'll never, hope you're happy with what you have currently and can recognize that in gratitude while you're working towards that which you would like to have, which that's what we're all doing here today, right? From a financial sense, we want to be better. We want to work towards something better financially, but recognize you, sh you can and you should be happy for what you have while you're working towards that. So gratitude. 
hopefully always lead with gratitude. Yeah, you can clap for that. I had somebody, yeah. All right. I asked Bill, like, can I bring this up there? Like, yeah, sure, you can bring that up there. I mean, I paid $5 for it. Anybody else pay $5 for one? Yeah, so I can bring it up here. I paid enough for it. I'll take it. I'll leave that cap off. Okay. All right, so those of you guys that don't know me, uh, this is who I am. This is the vanity slide, I guess you'd say. I've been doing real estate for 20 years, which doesn't really sound that great after Bruce came up here. I understand that. Uh, but 20 years now in real estate, um, I flipped over 2,000 properties, currently flipping over 100 properties a year. And I say I'm currently flipping. I have a phenomenal team of people that are helping. One of them is here in the audience today. You guys will probably meet him this weekend. He can, he can introduce himself to you guys if you want to. But amazing group of people who are they are helping me flip. 100 plus properties per year. So uh, they are the power behind my house flipping business. Uh, own multiple businesses, uh, own multiple rental properties. I have had a seven figure a net personal income for multiple years now. And I've personally worked with hundreds of sellers, which I hope I put that in there just so you guys could see. I have a little bit of qualification to talk to you about what I'm going to talk to you guys about today. Um, oh, this is my office. Isn't that awesome? This is my home office, right? We all been working from home now since COVID. Um, this in particular, I want to point it out to you. Like there's a this is in my home office. This is a picture of me and my grandfather. His name's Rupert. Uh, we called him Pop. I never knew him by Rupert. I called him Pop. Um, this is his property in North Georgia. For me, as a child, I was an army brat and moved all across the United States. I was born in Georgia, but we moved everywhere. But every summer, we would come home. And this is his house. This is his farm. And right here, this, this gravel road doesn't mean anything to you guys, but we used to go down Highway 20 before Zach Brown had the song. Zach Brown actually is from the same uh, completing high school to my cousin, so they grew up like uh, close to each other. That Highway 20 ride, I'd take that Highway 20 ride, we'd turn off that to Aaron Sosby Road, and then we'd turn here, and I knew we were home because I'd hear the sound of the gravel. And I knew we were home. This is my home. Uh, you know, my, my grandparents' home, but I've, you know, we had summers there. Um, this is my grandfather, Rupert, when he was younger. He was born in 1919, and he loved his land. Um, with, he worked hard and with determination. Like he, was, he was a farmer. All of his family from then generations, they were farmers, but he didn't have any land. But we had uh, the family of Laura's rich uncle Mark loaned him money to buy some land. Uh, rich uncle Mark, the rumor is he was a bootlegger, and I think he probably was back in the day. So that's how rich uncle Mark got his money. But he loaned uh, my grandfather, Pop, some money to buy the land. And with hard work and determination, Pop was able to work that land. Um, he never had anything extra. He always just had enough, whether it would be raising pigs or chickens or cows or produce or whatever it was he did. He worked hard. He put his effort into something and he sacrificed for it and he never had anything extra. Probably like many of your, your, your parents, the predecessors there. And this was the land that he loved. Ultimately, he had about 120 acres uh, and he loved that land. Um, and his hard work and sacrifice, he never really got to see it. And I think he never probably would have thought of himself as rich, uh, wealthy at all. But this is another picture that's in my office reminding me of, of him. Um, he cut that from some Georgia pine and he made that home sweet home and that's him and his wife. And the results of his hard work, sacrifice and effort with that land was he was able to sell a little bit of it to have a meager retirement. But then the rest of his land, when he passed away, when, his, his, when my grandparents passed away, they were able to sell a little bit of that land and pay off my mom's house and pay off her brother's house and have a little bit extra for my mom and brother. And then my, my uncle and his, his kids, my cousins, still live around that land. They have houses there around that land and they're able to enjoy that land. And there's a short-term rental property on that property so we can go back and enjoy the land and their legacy. And this is from a man, his effort and sacrifice, if you'd asked him growing up, he would have thought like, I didn't do anything. I didn't have anything. I never had any extra. 
but because of the land he did. I'm grateful for him. So I'm grateful for his legacy there. But I thought about that and I thought like, I hope you guys take from that. Where am I putting my hard work, effort and sacrifice, even if I'm not necessarily seeing it today? Pop didn't understand this. He didn't understand inflation. He didn't know what that was, but he was luckily a beneficiary of that because he happened to own an inflation hedge. This very work and effort that he was putting in didn't have extra, happened to be in something that was an asset class that was an inflation hedge. So he was able to benefit from the, something that a lot of people weren't. Um, he didn't understand. Um, you guys are all familiar. We've been talking about a lot recently, inflation, right? Like the expansion of, of, of the currency supply in, in the world and specifically in the United States. Like now it's been on top of people's minds because we're like battling the inflation stuff now. But like for years I've thought about this and I've known like when you're expanding currency supply, like and you're spending more than you're making and you're printing money, you're printing currency to, to cover that, it's, it's going to cause prices to go up, right? This is not a mystery to any of you guys, right? So this is a thing, right? Do you think governments are going to spend more money in the future? Think they're going to expand? Do you think they're going to tighten their belt and actually, you know, spend less? So if that's the case, over the long term, will prices go up? And will rents and will people's income go up, right? From the standpoint of like, do you think 30 years from now somebody's going to be making $30,000 a year? Or is it going to be 300, 3 million, right? So... I might be thinking, why are, we, why are we talking about this, Andy? How can we protect ourselves against inflation? Okay. How many of you guys here uh, live in America? Most of you, even for the bright lights, I can see those most hands went up there. Um, congratulations. I've been to uh, you know, my Egypt experience, which I'll go back to later. Congratulations, you live in America. You, you're grateful that you do. Um, how many of you guys have a home? All right, most of you guys. Okay, you have a home. How many of you guys... And Bruce just teed it up like that. How many of you guys, I know it's probably 80% of you guys, how many of you guys have an interest rate that's 5% or better? Thank you, Laura. That's like almost every hand. How about 4.5%? 4%? 3%? Under 3%? All right, somebody yell out, brag. What's the lowest one? We got, what? 2.75? 2.2? Not, two point, not uncommon, right? My neighbor had a 1.8% interest rate on a VA loan, right? The shame is he sold that house two weeks ago. Yeah, I'm glad that some of you guys know where this is coming. Bruce said it, my slides were already in, but this I believe is the greatest opportunity in this market. All right, property lead. What would you guys do with this? You got a house, it's five years old, so newer. It's worth 195 grand, they owe 202. They're gonna stroke a check to get rid of it. 4.8%, uh, what do you do? I mean, rent's $1,350 and payment's $1,400. Like, you're going to lose some money on this thing. God, what do you do with this thing? Yeah, hey, call Andy. I mean, this is one I struggled with, right? I don't know what to do with this. Like, ah, it's a new in this house. It's probably fine. This was 11 years ago. What I chose to do with that was I stepped in, and I didn't assume, but I... I started servicing the debt on, on this lady's mortgage. She transferred title to me. I took it over. I took the, the negative cash flow, if you will, on this new house. I'm like, I think this is a safe bet because I understand inflation. I understood it back then. I'm like, this is a nice house in a nice neighborhood. I'm guessing that the value in the rents will go up, right? No guarantees, but I put my hard worth effort and sacrifice and my money where my mouth is. Uh, and I said, I'm going to put in my effort for free because I wasn't making any money every month. I had the opportunity to pay that money every month, right? So I took that over. But here's where it is today. It's a 16-year-old house worth $480,000, and uh, I say 0154, actually paid it off a few years ago, but um, 
so the payment is not 1400 but it would have been, that's what it would have, amortization-wise, it would have been 154 and the rents are $2,200 a month. I could probably get more than that, but that. Good deal now? Man, hindsight, the benefit of hindsight, right? God, I wish we all had that time machine. This number represents the percentage of my deals right now, currently, because I added it up on our spreadsheet, our deal tracker, that have some form of what I'm going to talk about, seller financing. Specifically, this is called like subject to, right? We're talking about take subject to. 26% of our deals. So I've polled many of, a few of you in the last few days. Mike was one I talked to earlier today. And I said, hey, you've been doing this for a while now. He's like, yeah. I said, how many times have you, you've done like a subject to deal, right? And he's like, no, I haven't ever done one. I don't know. It haven't really worked into our system. I'm like, what? Why not? I don't really, I don't really know how, right? So I'm like, Mike, this is for you. This presentation is for you. You're missing out. Now it's 26%. It's not 86%, right? So if your only club in your bag is the subject to bag, you're going to be missing out, right? But you need to, you need to have these tools, but 26% you are missing out. Um, okay, good for you, Andy. You got an awesome house. Um, but what about us? Is this even possible now? Uh, if so, like, how can I get one of these things? And then give me the details, give me the details, because you guys are detailed people are like, okay, don't just tell me about it. Like, I need to know how I can do this. So that's what I hope you guys get from me today. Um, this is a house. There was just a PPC lead that came in on July 20th. Ended up purchasing the property in August. The situation was a seller, uh, older lady, her husband had passed away, and she was moving in with her sister, okay? Uh, the house was worth uh, $340,000-ish, and it needed about $30,000 worth of work. Um, and she owed $222,000 at 2.75% interest rate. So here's what we negotiated. $250,000 purchase. The seller agreed to leave that $222,000 in place. So the loan's at 2.75 for the life of the loan. This life of the loan. So we put $28,000 down and bought that property, okay? Do you think anybody else wants that property? Anybody in this room want it? Yeah, we figured some other people might want it too. So my company is... Uh, we flip and we also wholesale. So we're like, hey, let's send this out. So we sent this out, this exact thing out. This I screenshotted the email. That's what it was. Do you think anybody's interested? Notice the asking price. 290. It's a 340 house, guys. Who's going to pay 290 for a 340 house that needs 30 grand of work? Uh, answer: A lot of people. So there was a high bid at 292, and in my company, I had the opportunity to match the high bid. So I said, the first right of refusal. I'm going to buy this property. So I was, I put down. $70,000, so I got the ability to do that, and then uh, my company made a $42,000 fee. So anybody's just like, yeah, I don't want to, you know, do the subject to stuff because I'm a wholesaler. Anybody? Okay. And then I put $30,000 under pairs. Um, here's the token before and afters. We didn't really do that much to it, carpet and paint. There was a, you know, she had that tub in there, which was a little bit awkward, so we flipped that out and did some HVAC. That's what we did to it. A new HVAC system because I wanted my rental to be solid. Uh, other than that, it was just pretty much carpet and paint and flooring. Um, here's the rental numbers. So we rented out, and by the way, we turned it in one month. So from she left, we bought it and then turned around and had it rented in a month, which was awesome. Tribute to my property managers. Um, rent was four, is 1900 now. The payment, you notice, those of you that are detail-oriented paying attention to that payment, it's a little bit higher than the one I showed before because we're paying an extra insurance, which I'll talk about that later. Um, so our total monthly with a uh, cash, little bit of ca the cash flow and the principal pay down is $1,000. But remember, we put $70,000 down at closing, uh, $30,000 in repairs, so $100,000 investment, okay? What do you guys think about the deal? Is it okay? Yeah. Eh, it's okay, right? What will future you think about that deal? Remember my deal from before that was like, eh, I don't know if I do that. 11 years later, you look like a genius, right? What will future you think of that deal? 
Maybe it's a base hit now. Eh, it's too much money down, Andy. I don't want to do that. I don't really like the house. I want to do apartments, whatever. Okay, but it was, I think it was a solid deal. All right, here's what you're all asking. Like, how do I get one? I want one. Okay, I think you've got a couple options getting one. One, as I just showed you from my, my thing, that I sent this out as a wholesale deal and other people do. So you can buy from wholesalers. We're going to talk about that. Or you can negotiate one for yourself because who wants to do that? Let's go, right? Yeah! Get the wholesalers out of the way. I want to do this. Okay. Get them for wholesalers. So here are three example emails that I just screenshotted from wholesalers, okay? Here's what's important to you if you're looking to buy some wholesalers. I mean, you guys know how to get on their list. Get on their list, right? Um, here's the three things I would think that are criteria. Assuming that the house is a house that you want to own, right, in an area you want to be. Let's just take that as an assumption. But other than that, you're like, well, what am I looking for in these emails from these wholesalers, Andy? I don't know if it's a good deal or not. Here's the three things that I would kind of look for in these things. How much is the amount of the down payment? Because a huge down payment obviously turns off a lot of people, but I put a big down payment down on that house. I was great with the 2.75. I put a lot of money down on that. If that's a problem for you, because you're like, I don't have that much money, think about JVs. Think about partnerships. You can do that. There's somebody that's got that that's like, hey, you put the effort in, you found the deal, even if it's from a wholesaler, I'm willing to do that. So think about that if the down payments seem big. But what's the amount of the down payment on this deal? Smaller ones, the better, right? Um, interest rate, what's the interest rate there? These ones are all good, except for that one, 8.5, eh, not horrible. Not horrible, but it's definitely higher. Uh, and then this is a big one. What's the length of the term? Because a lot of times people will negotiate these for like a short term. Ours was the life of the loan, right? We're not, there's no balloon on that. But some of these, like eight month term, 12 month term, that's not necessarily bad. You can use that to flip it. Who would like to, I mean, hard money rates haven't really come down much, right? Two and 12 or whatever it is, okay? Would you rather have a set of pay in two and 12? Would you rather have uh, eight and a half even? Yeah, right? or certainly two and a half if you, for 12 months. So that's what you're looking for there. I think those three things. Does that make sense to everybody? Cool. Um, all right. I don't want Andy. These guys are just twisting my arm, right? How do I get my own deals? All right, let's talk about that. You got to work directly with sellers. Now, um, I'm going to talk about the keys about working with private sellers. I'm not going to talk about how to get those leads. It's been talked about a lot and might be talked about here over the next couple of days. But suffice it to say, you're going to have to pay money for those leads or you have to use your own effort, okay? But we're not going to talk about that today. But once you have those leads, how do you work with these private sellers? <sighs> this, I feel like, is key to, like, almost anything in life, any sort of conversations. But, like, please, please, please remember this and all these things. And Bruce was talking about it, which is awesome. Seek first to understand, then to be understood, like maybe write that down before you even go and talk to these sellers. Like think first, I got to understand, right? Before I'm understood. Most of us do the opposite of that. Like we just witness it all the time, okay? And I think of that as being super curious. I've, I may have done this 2,000 times, but I've never met this person. I've never bought this house. So I need to be super curious with them, right? So think first to understand, then to be understood and be super curious about that. Um, this is a key thing. Whoever is talking in a conversation is the one that's connecting. Don't reverse it. When you leave something thinking like, oh, that was a great appointment. Yeah, because you talked 90% of the time. You were connecting. They weren't. They thought that guy's a bozo. Get him out of here. I'm not selling him my house. Okay. Um, active listening, right? Listen to the seller. That's what builds rapport. And you're gathering information at the same time. It's a twofer, right? So listen. Listen to the seller. Seller finance deals, all forms of them, the specific we're talking about is subject to, are high trust deals. They need to feel like you have their best interest in mind. And by the way, do you? Because if you don't, a lot of these techniques and stuff, they're going to sense it. 
you know, that, that, like Bruce said, that the hair went up on the back of his neck. You can just sense it. We can feel it as humans, right? So make, make sure when you're going in there, check yourself that you really do have their best interests in mind. You actually do care and you do want to help them with their problem, right? Don't fake it. But these are high trust deals. So you need to listen to those sellers first to understand the keys of how they're going to, their need so that you can service that need and so that you'll build a rapport with them, especially with these deals, high trust deals. Here is my best example for how to do that. You guys are like, I don't have time to go over every single scenario, but if you could have this visual going in there, no pun intended, just kidding, it was intended. This is the visual. Um, who, we've all been to an optometrist before, right? Us, those of you with 2020 eyes that have never been to one. Sorry for you. Yeah. Not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Um, this is called the Feropter. You go there because the optometrist, he's very well trained, but he also doesn't know. I mean, he's got, he might have glasses. He might be like, here, Bill, you know, check these out. These glasses work great for me. What's the problem? It's not, that's his prescription, not, not yours. If he goes and assumes that you're exactly like him and it shows him the glasses, like, here you go, take that. It's, that's not going to service you at all, right? So go in there. You, you don't know this seller. So you need to put that feropter on them and be super curious and start asking them questions. What questions should you ask them? I would say you should probably start with some open-ended questions. You know, why are you interested in selling a house like this? Where are you moving to? Uh, you know, what's your goal here? What are you trying to do this? What's your timeline? Ask some of those, um, those advanced agreements too. Uh, who are the decision makers here? So is there anybody else that would be bugged if you sold this property with me without talking to them? Right? These are just different ways of finding out who these decision makers are. But all of this, the visual guys, remember this feropter. You put the feropter on there and ask them questions. And you're adjusting your questions as they give you an answer. Oh, so this is clearer than that, huh? Okay, how about now? Tell me about that. Dig a little deeper on some of those things they say. Oh, your, your brother's a decision maker. Tell me more about that. Where does he live? What does he feel like? Does he, does he see where I'm going with this? Put the feropter on people, okay? Um, ask those open-ended questions. This house right here, the one, the house in, in Roy that we bought, we understood our situation. Um, here was our situation as we were putting the frop down. Her, some of the key points that you need to understand was, she owned this house. You know, we negotiated the price, um, but that two point, the two hundred twenty-two thousand dollars she owed there, two point seven five percent. The loan was in her husband's name. Her husband's passed away. Ding. Did you like clue something? Why would anybody do this? And she's moving in with her sister. The loan's not in her name. It's in her husband's name, who's passed away. Pro tip with that, we negotiated the price with her first. Right, you're getting to that, like, the, the value. Like, here's, here's the price that we're willing to pay for this property. And then, after you did that, you sprinkle on the terms. Which, let me go back for a second here, too. I want you guys... We know this industry jargon from coming here. We know things like all-inclusive trust deeds, wraparound mortgages, subject to, you know, would you consider seller financing? All this industry jargon scares people. They don't know what you're talking about. They're going to say no. Don't try to confuse them. You're not trying to act smarter than them. Layman's terms, third grade stuff. What if we could find a way to do this? These are the type of conversations you're going to have with them, right? So once you negotiate the price, then you sprinkle some of the terms on top. I kind of like this. I've used this before. Um, hmm, okay, so you want to be at 250. Uh, that's a little more than I wanted to pay. But what if we could find a way? Hmm. What if we could find a way? Like at 250, you owe 222, so at closing you're gonna get, she says 28,000, okay. What if we could find a way that like, you get all of your money at closing? Would you mind if you got everything due to you at closing, would you mind if the bank had to wait a little bit to get their money? And she's like, well, what are you talking about? 
what I just introduced there was a subject too, her leaving that loan in place. You're like, well, I don't really care when they get their money, you know, it's in my husband's name, it's not, and as long as you're credible, and we're gonna go over some of those things too, but yeah, okay, so that's how I pitched that. So sprinkle that on top after you negotiated the price. My opinion, right? So if you get all your money closing, would you mind if the bank had to wait for theirs? It opens a conversation, or come up with your own phrase of waiting of saying that, but for me, that's worked. Um, okay, they agreed. That's awesome. How do we write this up, Andy? Lest you think we've got some awesome, amazing, like perfectly written out contract, this was what that contract looked like. Who's impressed? Does it look awesome? You can take a picture if you want. I mean, it's... That's the contract. This is the addendum. You can take a picture of that if you want, but um, basically it says this. That's a better picture. Ultimately, in the addendum, if you just write something to this, Seller agrees to leave the existing financing in place for the life of the loan and the buyer to be responsible for existing financing one mortgage rate. Something similar to that, you throw that in that, you negotiate the price, you put that in a denim, it's kind of it. Who thinks they could do that? Yeah, I think everybody says, they, yeah, that seems pretty simple. Like, but what would I say? That. I have people like, well, I don't know how to write in the denim. That. Or anything similar. This one before says something a little different than that, but it's along the same lines. But that's all you have to say. That's all you have to say. Um, then what does it look like on the settlement statement? That, I know you can't read it, so I gave you that. <laughs> Existing loan taken subject to. That's it. And this was a different one because uh, it was more clear. But that's it, right? That's all it is. Um, what else do I need? Authorization to release information. You're not on that loan. The bank's not going to talk to you. If you get this filled out, you can take a picture of that and make one similar. The bank will give you information on that loan. One step better than that is this which is a limited power of attorney. Adam talked about it earlier. That gives you like specific, that's limited, it's not power of attorney for their whole life, but as it pertains to this property. So it says in there for closing, insurance, mortgage payments. The only reason I've ever used this, honestly, is to cash an escrow check that came in their name. Sometimes you get like, you sell it or whatever, you get the, the escrow check. That's the only reason I've used that, but I've taken this into the bank with the escrow check. The check doesn't have my name on it. I'm like, yeah, but this is for that property. And they're like, oh cool, they deposit it in my account. It's the only reason I've used it. All right, I'm gonna give some frequently asked questions to you guys. How do I make that payment every month though, Andy? How do you make yours? Do you write the check and like put it in you know, this thing and you mail it in? You can do that. Just have, just change the notice address to your address or your PO box. You'll get their statement, it says their name, that's fine, you write the check, you mail it in, you can do that. Better than that I'd say is do you guys pay online? Do you have like an online thing where you go in there and it's auto drafts from your account? You can do that too. You're gonna get that information from the seller at closing. You can log in, get their login, and you can go and change it to your bank account. That's what we did with the one and Roy. So pretty simple, right? Um, why would the seller ever agree to this? There's a number of reasons they would. Uh, a couple of them, common circumstances is death. Like Barbara's husband, he passed away. He doesn't need to be on the loan. Makes sense to me that like, hey, doesn't really matter, right? It's not on his credit anymore. Or it's on his credit, but he's passed away, right? Uh, somebody that's not going to buy a house, like they're moving into a retirement home. Uh, inheritance situations work that way. Somebody's got foreclosure and horrible credit. Like they're not really they don't really care, right? Like not protecting their credit. Like you're gonna protect it, but you can spin it as a benefit. You're like, look, we're gonna make that payment on time every month. It's gonna build your credit, right? That could be a good thing for them, right? Or they're super motivated and they're like, I don't have any other options, I'm gonna do that. Like the example that I showed you from 11 years ago. Um, that works too. All right, this is a big one. How do I know you're actually gonna make my payment though, Andy? Here's the thing, you may have missed a step. I, mean, I said it was a high trust deal. You thought you had all their trust, but when this thing comes up, what they're saying is, they don't trust you, right? So you, maybe you need to do a better job of going back and like talking to them. I, some of the answers I would say to this is, well, you can call the 1-800 number from your mortgage and you can verify that it's been paid 
every month. Okay, that's great. You can call these sellers I've worked with before. Here's my references. Okay, that's fine. Uh, I'm putting money down. I'm an investor. I'm not in the business of losing that money. That's another thing. But I would say it indicates a lack of trust, so go back. So when you're, I'm going to say you're going to go back and resolve the concerns. So when you're resolving those concerns, when, when I would say to them, restate back to them, they say, like, well, how do I know you're making my payment? Well, if I understand you right, you're a little bit worried that we're going to do this arrangement, and then and you're going to find out that the payment hasn't been made. Is that right? Yes. Well, anything else? Tell me more about that, right? Two things. It restates back so you can under, they show that you understood them, but it's going to give you a second to step back and think, right? Now the ball's back in their court, so you're like, okay, how am I going to answer this? It gives you some space. So that would be the technique that I would use when I was resol when I'd resolve these concerns, okay? Restate it back. gives you clarity, time. gives them, they can, they can give more clarity on their thought, uh, and it gives you time, okay? If I understand you right, is there anything else? And then you go answer that, right? Once you understand that concern, then you can solve it, right? Seek first to understand, then to be understood. Um, if you don't make my payment, how am I going to get this property back? That's a super smart question. And um, a lot of times we'll take these and we actually just, we won't do any sort of security instrument for them or we won't do a note with them. But if they're asking that, you can give them a security instrument. You can sign a note. And I know I'm going to sound really technical here for you guys. Like if you sign a note, you can do the note and the security instrument is a, like a trust deed or a mortgage. So it's like an all-inclusive trust deed. You're signing the note with the seller, all-inclusive trust deed or a wraparound mortgage, you can do that. You can give them that. And if that's a concern for them, you can have the title company, your attorneys, they can drop that paperwork for you. So if that's a concern for them, I would, I would do that, right? Uh, and that, that gives them recourse. If you don't pay them, they can foreclose on that note. Is this legal? They ask that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is legal. It has a due on sale clause if they understand what the due on sale clause is. But that's the lender's right, but not their obligation to call that loan due. But yeah, it's absolutely legal. I hope you guys... You guys all know that, right? Um, will this loan be still in my name and on my credit? Answer, yeah. It's going to be on your name. It's on your credit, which can be spun as a good thing. We're going to make that payment on time. It's going to build your credit. Um, but it will affect your debt-to-income ratio. Now, I'm not a lender. I think they should talk to a lender. I would tell them that. I would tell you guys to talk to a lender. But what I have heard is if somebody else has made that payment documented for 12 months, then that can be lenders. Some lenders will take that off of the debt-to-income ratio. Does that make sense? So they do. if, if they're going to buy the house next month, don't do this to them. But if they if they have plans in the in the coming years and you the, the loan will come off the debt to income ratio again talk to lenders but that's what I've heard uh, that's the feedback that I've heard too. Um, why do you get another insurance policy? Asked that isn't it paid in escrow? Principal interest tax insurance? Yeah, it is paid in escrow, but that's for that person. So it's Barbara's husband that's paying that's that insurance, and I can go get a new insurance policy and tell the escrow, but I don't really want to. I don't really want to rock the boat with the lender. I don't really want to tell them, hey, here's exactly, you know, here's what we're doing. So I just go get my own insurance. Because that insurance, if, if that house burns down, that insurance that we're paying in Barbara's husband's name, he doesn't own the house anymore. So it, it doesn't match up. So you can't insure something you don't own. So that's just going to be null and void, even though we're making that payment to make the lender happy. So we're going to get our own insurance policy to protect us. It's a cost of doing business, but for 2.75% for the life of the loan, I'm willing to do that. Um, should I put this title in trust to disguise ownership? Um, yeah, you probably should, especially now because this wasn't as big of a thing and not a lot of loans were called due. I'd only seen a few called due before, but now with rates being lower or rates being higher in this, like I, that's probably a good idea, but I would talk to a, an attorney in your States, uh, you know, and, and see if, if, uh, if they could help you set up that trust. Okay. Um, could I buy a property subject to and sell it finance at a higher rate? 
now you're thinking, right? Now you're thinking, right? Could you sell it on or finance to somebody at today's rate, seven, seven and a half, but you have a 2.75% underlying and make a little spread on that money? That's a good, something to think about, right? Um, that's sprinkling a little fairy dust on top of that. All right, so here's my questions for you. Where are you putting your efforts and your sacrifice? Rhetorical question for you there. Do you understand this opportunity right now with 80 some percent of the mortgages being under 4% or whatever Bruce said there? Do you understand that opportunity? And after hearing, seeing this stuff here today, what's stopping you from doing it? All right, future you will thank you, I promise. I'm out of time, but I do have something else. I left you guys hanging. I left you guys hanging with my Egypt story. So you guys would probably want to know. <laughs> there is something I, I would like to have you do for me, but let me tell you this first. So I was, when I was arrested in Egypt, uh, they took me to the, the, the police station there. I mean, I, I couldn't believe this was happening to me. I walked into the police station and there was this holding cell and it was an eight by 10 cell. And there was a bunch of guys standing in there. There was probably like, I mean, it was like as big as this right here. It wasn't big at all. And there's right in this little area, there's eight people standing there, eight guys, and they're looking at me. And I'm like, I went to my, the guy, his name's Ruby. I said, he's my, my translator. He worked with a tour company. I said, Ruby, I'm not going in there, am I? And he said, no, 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 you're not going in there. I'm like, okay, that's good. Um, Ruby went and talked to the police chief and come back after like 20 minutes. And he went, I found out later, we told the police chief was, he said, hey, let him go sleep in the hotel. I will stay here for him. He will come back. I will stay here for him. And the police chief said, no, he's an American. He, they had my passport, but he's like, no, he's an American. He could go, he could do something. No, he's gonna stay right here. But because he pled for me, because he said, I will stand in that jail cell for him all, all night until tomorrow when he goes to see somebody. Because he pled for me, they let me sit in a chair. As long as I would sit in that chair, they let me sit there um, all night long instead of, and I was two feet from the jail, but like they let me sit there. All night long, guys, I watched the craziest things. This excursion in Luxor was absolutely insane. The pride, the brutality, the things I saw that these police were doing to people. Uh, I don't want to disparage too much of there, but there was things that I was like, I cannot believe this is actually happening right now. Like this is surreal. It wasn't real, right? Uh, that next morning, I thought I was going to go see somebody. Uh, I didn't sleep that night, <laughs> obviously. Um, and I want to be able to tell my wife and kids that I was fine, right? I thought this would just be some simple paperwork. And that next morning, I went to go see somebody, and um, I thought I was going to see somebody really quickly. You know, they're gonna, somebody's going to come in at 8 a.m. I'm going to sign a form and be out of here, right? 8 a.m. comes, 9 a.m. comes, 9.30 comes. They start marching all these people out of these cells. They start handcuffing people. So they put me in the handcuffs. And my friends can't be there. They, Ruby wanted to be there with me all night, and he was most of the night, but they, they kind of shoot him away. They didn't want him to be there, right? But he came back in the morning, so he was there with me. They're handcuffing me, and then they put me in an armored car with all these other, with all the other detainees who are, I'm the only American there. They're all looking at me, and they don't speak English, and I don't speak Arabic. They're all looking at me like, what, they, American? I'm like, yeah, you know, like, you know, drugs, what'd you do? <laughs> I'm just like, they didn't, they didn't know, they are just like, what, you know? Like, yeah, and I was like you know, a little bit nervous of them, right? But I'm handcuffed, back of armor car. First time experience for me, guys, this is a heck of an excursion, right? I was go there, go to the, it seems like a courthouse. It's not a courthouse. Um, I mean, we're sitting there all day long. 
turn 10 o'clock, 11 a.m., 12. I see Ruby in the back of the room. I'm like, hey. And he's just like, you know what time? One o'clock, two o'clock. Nobody is leaving. All of us, everybody's handcuffed. We're, people, we're leaving. We're standing up and walking handcuffed so we can go to the bathroom. And then we're coming back and sitting down. Nobody's leaving. Nobody's talking to anybody. I'm like, what are we doing here? Three o'clock finally comes and I get to go out to go see somebody. Like, I don't know why they let me go see somebody, but like maybe I'm the American and behind the scenes, my friend who stayed there and Ruby, they're paying bribes, paying tons of bribes. This is the worst building uh, that you've got like, you know, the building permit process. You feel like it's all these little steps you got to through. This is like the worst building permits process you've ever seen. And for every signature, you need to pay bribes so that somebody will come like, oh, they're not here right now. Well, here's some money. Oh, okay, he's here, he can sign. You gotta get like 20 signatures of that, right? So finally, and I don't know any of this stuff's going on because I'm sitting there, you know, handcuffed and like, I don't know what's, what's happening here. Three o'clock, I finally get to go see somebody. I sit down, he's speaking Arabic, I don't understand. Translator's talking, Ruby is there talking with me. He's trying to explain stuff to him. He's like, I want him to say it, you know? So I'm like, so I say stuff to the guy, he's speaking Arabic to him and I don't understand what's going on there. I'm there for like three minutes and it's a circus, guys. I don't have time to tell you who the circus was, but it was absolutely insane. I was just like, I cannot believe this is happening to me, right? And uh, three o'clock turns into four o'clock, turns into five o'clock. Well, I was there for that guy for three minutes. Then they, they left me uh, and I went back, to, uh, went back to sit down with everybody else. Um, and then finally at five o'clock, they handcuff us all again and we all go back to the, the, the jail before. And I go back to the same place I started that day. Five o'clock turned to six, turned to seven, turned to eight. Finally, there'd been enough bribes paid and Ruby had done enough there they let me out at 10.30 that night. Now, you know, you guys are all wondering, like, what the heck did you do? While I was in Israel, I bought a coin. Uh, G- Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. It was one of those. It was like original piece. Not one of the 30, but you know what I'm saying, one of those. So I bought a coin. Well, apparently, it's illegal in, in, Israel, in, in Egypt to have something like that. I had proof that I bought it and everything. But that was the crime I'd committed. And they, they said that I did commit that crime. So I, was, I guess I, I was guilty of that. But I finally got out from the bribes. But... What I want you guys to do for me, and I know I'm totally over time, but I am so incredibly grateful for Ruby for doing what he did for me. He did for me, like, I don't, even, I don't know why he did that for me. I'm so grateful. How, like, I couldn't do that for myself. I was stuck, right? So I sent him a text this morning, and I said, Ruby, I just told him how great, he's like my brother now in Egypt. I'm like, I'm just so grateful, I express that gratitude. So I would love if all of you guys would do a favor for me, if you got anything out of my presentation, Think of somebody in your life right now. I know we're over time, but I would love, think of somebody, the first name that pops in your head, and I want you guys to send them a text message right now of love and gratitude because there's somebody in your life that needs to hear that from you. So if we could take 30 seconds and you guys do that right now, like I would appreciate a thousand pieces of love and gratitude going out to somebody today. That's the repayment. I'm serious. I'm giving you guys your, I'm watching the time. Send a text. Love or gratitude. There's somebody. Whoever popped into your head, do it. Bonus if you can do two. Bill Allen back there, he's a winner. He wants to, he can do two. Overachievers. more seconds.
All right, and I want to leave you guys with one more piece of gratitude, one more thing that I got out of that. That excursion that I call it in Luxor that I had there was probably one of the greatest excursions of my life because I went to Israel to walk where Jesus walked. And it was amazing to go see those things. But when I was there all night long and handcuffed and experiencing those things, what that taught me, for the first time in my life, I was powerless. I couldn't do anything. Like I've never experienced that before. And the thought came to me, yeah, you went and walked where, you know, where Jesus walked. But like, what does this mean? Like, why, why, why would you, would you follow him? And the thought came to me, like, if I would do anything for Ruby and believe me, I took care of him. Like if what, when I understood in that moment, the thought came like that I'm going to die someday. And like, you know, I'm, I'm flawed and sin, like, and I'm powerless that the, what, what Jesus did for me when I knew that, I'm like, I felt that because I was like, wow. And I'm like, what would I do for him? So walking where Jesus walked was cool, but I've received like more like, as I've tried to walk as Jesus walked, and, he, and it, it, this scripture kept coming to mind, if you love me, keep my commandments. So how can I, how can I show my gratitude for him doing that for me that I don't even understand? I can just keep his commandments. So that was Ruby. Love that man. But I want to leave you guys with this. It's me and my family at the Garden of Gethsemane. Or at the, the, the Garden Tomb. You make a living by what you get, but you make a life by what you give. That's what my mentor, I mean, he didn't say that quote, but that's what he embodied our Savior Jesus Christ, for me. And I know you all have different faith traditions. Like, I want to embody that. I want to do those things. So I want to encourage you guys all to go out there and, and do that. Thank you. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed that one. I always love listening to Annie talk and teach. And if you got just, you take one thing, implement in your business, you're going to make a lot more money. And uh, sub two uh, strategy and what he was talking about is perfect in this market right now. So what I want you to do is I want you to consider joining us inside the Seven Figure Runway program. I have added an amazing simulation model inside the program. So many people are out there telling you to take action, telling you to just go and do, telling you to start, and you are the one that's left holding all the risk. And what I want to do is I want to completely de-risk that by putting you in real scenarios, real scenarios. We've built hundreds of scenarios inside of our program of deals that we have gone through that have had problems or issues, and we can create a scenario for you to train you in that problem that you're having right now. If you're stuck in marketing, or you're stuck in lead intake, or if you're stuck in uh, uh, going on the appointments and doing sales, if you're stuck in dispositions, if you're stuck dealing with contractors or raising money or getting a, a challenging deal closed, I can create a simulation just for you in your market, with your experience, with everything, and show you the problems so I can teach you how to decide and how to make decisions. Everything we're doing inside our program right now is revolutionary. No one else is doing this. You're not going to find this anywhere else because nobody went through it in the military like I did. I've taken it from the military and I'm implementing into our seven-figure runway program so our members will see success at a multiple of any other programs are producing right now. If you're interested in something like that, go to sevenfigurerunway.com, fill out an application, and get with my team and jump on a call. I will see you guys on the next podcast.